their stories being told by people who are out of their minds. That's what we've always believed. Welcome to Live Patrol, an edutainment podcast that brings to light ingenious, interesting, and sometimes unbelievable stories from history and mixes in creative storytelling. Every episode, we hope you learn at least four facts that you can use around the dinner table or at the gas station to astound your family, friends, or the guy who drove off without taking the filler out of his car. The headlines are ear-catching, that-can't-be-true factoids, while the explanations show you just how real they are. Every week, there will be two little lies thrown into the mix to keep us on our toes and vigilant for the truth. My name is Michael. My name is Brenna. And the topic this week is... Close, but no cigar. Okay, so that's what we went with. Okay. <laughs> These are stories about uh, things where it was close, but, you know, no cigar. <laughs> Before we start, uh, we apologize in advance for any mispronunciations that occur. Uh, we try to do our due diligence to find correct pronunciations of names and places. Uh, there will be a couple times this episode where you fall short. Give me your three. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Number one. 2,000 French trains too big for their britches can't fit in stations. Okay. Uh, that sounds like a width problem. A girth problem. <laughs> Seems like a girth problem right there, dude. <laughs> okay, number two. Stonehenge replica was too big for Black Sabbath stage. Well, that's... You You wrote it right here. It's, it says 24 inches. <laughs> Right, and then we have Armando Galarga's uh, Galarga's 2010 perfect game nearly wasn't. That one's the lie because it wasn't. I know that one. <laughs> I hate you so much. I figured it was baseball. You know. Oh man, you, you know we'll say. Please don't. Why we'll, would you? We'll, we'll save that one for last. Uh, I wrote it really good. I know. Okay, can I know. You not yeah, I won't. Make a big deal. I won't. Okay, well, he already knows which one's lying. <laughs> Give me the first one. Hate you. Okay, well, this is the least fun one anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, 2,000 French trains too big for their britches can't fit in stations. It would appear with all of the hype about humans becoming fatter in the last few decades, <laughs> trains are having the same trend, which became an issue in 2014 for France's railway company, Société Nationale des Chemins de or something like that which i will refer to as sncf from here on out Thank like you. a normal person <laughs> in may of 2014 it was reported that the sncf had purchased 2,000 new trains for 15 billion euros or roughly 20 billion u.s dollars that's like today's money i don't know what it was six years i couldn't figure out how to calculate that <laughs> However, when the trains were delivered, it was discovered that they were about 20 centimeters too wide or just under 8 inches. Yeah. As you can imagine, the... Quite the mess up. This is bad, yeah. <laughs> As you can imagine, the SNCF was upset and turned to the Réseau Ferré de France. Oh, sorry, de France. Or here on out, known as the RFF, again, as a normal person would call it. <laughs> Who ran the rails at the time. Which is where the measurements came from. Wait, wait, wait. So, uh, is it width of the actual trains or the width of the tracks? The, the... So, this was only the trains that were the problem. 
Oh, so it's it was, it was just, the, just the body of the trains. So the trains... Oh, well. Fatty. The platforms came out a little bit on some of them, and you'll find out why. According to officials at RFF, mistake came when they had only taken measurements of rail stations built in the last 30 years oh. and neglected stations that were older. The French rail system has been around since 1938, so yeah, that's a lot of stations that didn't get measured. <laughs> and unfortunately, trains were smaller back then. <laughs> the transport minister at the time, Frederick Cuvillier, blamed the error on the absurd rail system, uh, quotations there, and stated that this is what happens, quotations, when you separate the rail operator from the train company. Apparently, due to an EU directive, the government of France was required to separate train operations, so the trains, from the railway infrastructures. So then, they, the people who control the trains are not the people who control the actual railways. <laughs> so there's two people there and you have to, you know, talk to each other, uh, causing more possibilities for mistakes to get lost in the communication channels. It would appear, however, as of January of 2015, railway infrastructure was given back to SNCF as a new division. So they finally were able to have it under one umbrella. It was a different division, but it's basically the same place. Filing down the platforms of over 1,000 stations to fit the sparkling, robust new trains was projected to cost more than 65 million or over 50 million euros, leading to, oh, that's 65 million dollars, by the way, US dollars. Or 50 million euros leading to a very expensive 20 centimeters. <laughs> uh, some notable things, though. In 2015, they would also find out that the trains were millimeters too tall to fit in Italian stations. Oh my God. <laughs> so those traveling from France to Italy have to, to stop outside the border to board a smaller oh train. My God. <laughs> yep. That's uh, just so close. I'm so close. I'm so glad you have this this uh this topic because i have one that's kind of related <laughs> which topic the trains the tw twins 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 this train <laughs> is way too big to fit anywhere in france this train is too tall for italy i'm sorry We're that a... is a bruce springsteen we'll listen thing. to the, we'll listen to this in the morning and see if it's funny <laughs> <laughs> all right so i imagine you want stonehenge now give me the second one all right, so number two, Stonehenge replica was too big for Black Sabbath wait, wait. stage. Uh, before you start, does this actually uh, is does the Spinal Tap uh, like skit have something to do? Like, is it based off of the Black Sabbath thing? Let me ask you something, Michael. Do you think I would write this story and not talk about Black uh, the Spinal Tap? Then please continue. <laughs> All right, <laughs> Black Sabbath's eleventh studio album, Born Again dropped on August 7th, 1983, which was followed, unsurprisingly, by the Born Again tour. The album Born Again featured a song called Stonehenge, which obviously meant in order to play the song for the tour, they were gonna need a replica of Stonehenge on stage. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Now I know what you're thinking. Spinal Top did that. And we'll get to that in a second. But let's talk about Black Sabbath and what was going on with them at the time. You see, in 1979... Tony Iommi, guitarist and original member of Black Sabbath, fired Ozzy Osbourne from the band due to, well, I guess a lot of reasons. Uh, any Black Sabbath people out there, yeah, we can just cringe at this. Uh, but this left Black Sabbath vocalist lists. <laughs> 
between 79 and 82, Ronnie James Dio, famously of Ramo, stepped in to take over. But that would last only until Dio got fed up with his inability to have creative power in the group. Thus leading us to 1983, where Ian Gillen of Deep Purple was persuaded into joining the cause. Gillen and the members of Black Sabbath had cut the album Born Again, believing they were doing it as a supergroup and not as Black Sabbath. However, when the time came to sign contracts, the album was labeled a Black Sabbath album, to supposedly the chagrin of most of the band members. Oh, by the way, at this time, it was the three... So the only person who wasn't an original Black Sabbath member was Ian Gillum of Deep Purple. So everybody else is original. So already things weren't doing great. But now they were going to go on tour and they wanted to figure out what sort of stage theme to have. Now, according to Iommi, in his autobiography, the Stonehenge set was Geezer Butler's idea, the bassist and original member of Black Sabbath. But the designers took the measurements wrong, all wrong, thinking he meant that it was supposed to be life-size. <laughs> according to Geezer Butler, it was the idea of Don Arden, their manager and Sharon Osbourne's father, who wrote down the dimensions and gave it to the set man manager, but Hold didn't specify that the measurements were in feet, not meters. However, in a Mojo Magazine interview with Ian Gillen in 1994, Gillen claims, while they were trying to come up with something at a light and stage design company in Birmingham, Geezer Butler suggested Stonehenge. A lighting engineer asked, How do you envisage it, Geezer? And Geezer replied, Life size, of course. <laughs> now, this is probably setting even more little alarms off in your head with, Wait! That's like the Stonehenge napkin drawing in Spinal Tap. Well, just hold your horses, okay? So it turns out, a life-size Stonehenge was stupidly big for nearly every venue. The stones were far too big, with pillars about 45 feet tall, according to band members, and even at the Maple Leafs Ice Rink, uh, which they say was in Montreal, but I'm pretty sure that's in Ontario. So we're going to go with Ontario. <laughs> uh... They could only fit three of the stones in and two cross pieces. It was a bit of an issue, to say the least, but there were more issues to come. It turns out another problem with the album now being rebranded as a Black Sabbath album was that Gillen would now have to sing other Black Sabbath songs as well, which he struggled with. He stated in a 1992 interview, I couldn't get into my brain any of these lyrics. I cannot soak in these words. There's no storyline. I can't relate to what they mean. <laughs> so because Gillen's brain literally rejected lyrics of Black Sabbath songs, he wrote them down in a book and would place the book on the stage to read along with as he performed. This worked fine until six buckets of dry ice were used to smoke screen the stage without warning, which caused the book to be unreadable. <laughs> causing Gillen to crouch down and swat away the smoke from the book. So he could at least get through a song. And one of the funny parts is in his interview with Mojo that he was talking about, he was down swatting it. And every time his head would stick up, someone would go, hey, look, it's Dio. Because <laughs> they didn't even realize that it was Ian from Deep Purple. Which is like, not an insult to injury. <laughs> Adding in that Don Arden thought it would be to have a man with dwarfism dress up in a red leotard and crawl across the top of the stones to resemble the horrendous devil baby on the cover of the album, 
while they played the sound of a screaming baby in the background. So they, if you see that there's one picture of these, uh, the, the, look at the, these stones. And again, this is going to be in the, uh, oh my God. they're huge. Yeah. This For, is in the, the notes. They're 45, these are 45 feet, feet tall. tall. So they have to be at least 30 feet and long. And they had this man crawl across in a leotard on the top of those and he was supposed to like you know like as the baby screaming and they had mattresses on the back right so the worst part they had these mattresses that they laid down and he was supposed to fall back from that onto the mattress oh thank you yeah this act didn't last long (laughs) that's a nearly five story fall and everybody was weirded out because nobody was told that they didn't even know because this man had just like shown up backstage just all of a sudden, they've been they've been setting up for like a week, and then on the last like night, they're like, "Hey, who's this bloke?" It's even creepier, just like yeah. And Don Arden's like, "It's cool. The kids are gonna love it." <laughs> At this point, it is safe to say this is a situation of art imitating life, not the set. No, that thing was horrendous. Apparently, faces in the audience were either shocked at the sound or laughing at the absurdity. No, supposedly, Geezer Butler said that he had told the story of the tour mishaps to the associate scriptwriter of This Is Spinal Tap, leading to the famous scene where a replica of Stonehenge, made instead mistakenly smaller than requested, was lowered down amongst cloaked band members in a cloud of smoke and little people in leotards dance around it. But honestly, after hearing the real story, I can't help but wonder if it wouldn't have been even funnier the way it was. (laughs) But cheap props. Make it really small. Oh, yeah. No, they definitely... Plus, you can't completely rip it off. Because then Black Sabbath would be like, do we have to... Do we get paid for this? <laughs> <laughs> so, also, as a little side to this, due to the size of the replica after Mon- Montreal, or now Ontario, as I'm realizing this is completely messed up, uh, Stonehenge would be destined for storage, as there was no point in bringing the massive creation along to venues that couldn't hold it. Most of them are like, yeah, there's no way we're ever going to get these <laughs> into any other place. Like, it barely fit into a huge ice rink stadium. <laughs> According to Iomi, after taking the Stonehenge replica from England to America, they were unable to take it back to England, so it was left on the docks. Um, <laughs> I imagine it was supposed to be, you know, taken ship. by ship. However... Uh, so it's docs and quotations because, however, even an unresolved mysteries Reddit post has been unable to solve which docs he was talking about. Yeah, or where do they? Where are they now? Yeah, like where is it now? Yeah, jeez, we need we need VH1 now more than ever. <laughs> A little bit uh, more on what was going on with Black Sabbath after that. This was the first and last year Ian Gillan would work with Black Sabbath before hightailing it back to Deep Purple. Probably as fast as he could. (laughs) Uh, Drummer Bill Ward started the year off completely sober, but the tour drove him back to drinking, causing him to leave for rehab in the middle. So, yeah, like, he started off, he's like, yeah, I feel good. And he even made the the album. He was completely sober. The album boom was touring. He started, he's like, yeah, no. And he started drinking again. Uh, When he left, he was replaced by, I don't have his name, but he was replaced by a bassist. And then at the end of the tour... Uh, both uh, Gillum and the bassist were like, yeah, this sucks. I feel like we're just being used. Like, nobody cares about us. We're just the help. And really, a lot of this comes down to Tony Iommi 
uh, not great to work with is what it sounds like. But I'm not making any, this is just this is personal what it sounds like from these stories. Anyways, that is the story of what, how Spinal Tap got their iconic scene. <laughs> Alright. Give me the lie. Oh, man. But for starters, this this story sucks. It does, but it doesn't. Uh, so the way I remember it is he was robbed of this no-hitter. All right. Uh, or, oh, I'm sorry, was it a perfect game or was it a no-hitter? Perfect game. Yeah, he was robbed which of this perfect Which is even rarer. Game. Yeah, which is even more rare. Uh, okay, so number three is Armando Galarraga's 2010 perfect game nearly wasn't. So now we already know that my writing is going to suck because I set it up so it was a lie and whatever. Whatever. <laughs> So the Detroit Tigers were squaring up with the Cleveland Indians on June 2nd, 2010. At this point, 2010 was shaping up to be quite a year for perfect games, with Dallas Braden of the Oakland Athletics and Roy Halladay of the Philadelphia Phillies adding their names to the perfect game list in May of that year. So literally just the month prior to this. <laughs> now it was Armando Galarraga's turn to make history with his almost perfect game. Wait, what's that? I said he had a perfect game? Oh no. I'm going to say it was Galarraga's imperfect game. Just a quick bit of baseball background for those of us who are less sport inclined. A perfect game takes place when all batters of an opposing team are retired in order without a single one making an on base for any reason. This means no hits, no homers, and no walks. As of today, September 18th, 2020, this has only happened 23 times officially. And that is what was robbed from Galarraga on that hot June day. You see, after retiring 26 batters without a single one touching that dusty first base bag, in the top of the ninth inning with only one out to go, Jason Donald hit a ground ball that the first baseman, Miguel Cabrera, had to leave his position to retrieve. This prompted Galarraga to cover first and wait for Cabrera to pass him the ball. Unfortunately, they could not turn the play in time, and Donald made it to first, ending the perfect game. Or did he? After tagging the base, Galarraga had begun to celebrate his beautiful, spotless, dare I say, perfect game, when it was made clear that Jim Joyce, the first base umpire, had ruled Donald safe at first base. At that time, Galarraga just smiled at Joyce. <laughs> the truth, however, was in the replay footage which showed Galarraga tagging Donald out nearly a foot ahead, meaning Joyce had truly blown the call. You may be saying, wow, that ump is a jerk, or I bet Galarraga wanted to give him a piece of his mind. Well, the game ended with Donald never making it past third base, ruling it a 28-out, nearly perfect game, and a rare occurrence took place when the postgame began. Jim Joyce, the umpire, who turned the game upside down on the last out, met with the press and gave a tearful apology after reviewing the footage and realizing he had messed up the call. He added that he took a perfect game away from that kid over there that worked his ass off all night. It was quite a moment, but it made sense when it was learned that he had apologized to Galarraga first, who turned out to hold no grudge against Joyce. Apparently, Joyce admitted his mistake, let Galarraga know how sorry he was, and Galarraga gave him a hug. According to Galarraga, it didn't really matter because he knew in his heart he had pitched a perfect game. Although in May of this year, he had attempted to get the game changed to a perfect game in the books with no luck. Fans were upset, 
The game would have been the first perfect game in Detroit history and would have broken multiple records, including the shortest time between perfect games, which had also been broken in the previous month. So uh, Dallas is uh, the Oakland A's player. He got his on May 9th, I think. And then the uh, Phillies player, he got his on the 29th. So that broke that they had so one 20, in one month. So that's the shortest it had ever been. 23-ish days. <clears throat> this game was played on the 7th. Or was it the 4th? Sorry, hold on. <laughs> the 2nd. So between the 29th and the 2nd was four days it would have put between perfect games. Which would have been an insane uh, stat. couple questions. Uh, uh-huh. I, well, do you have any more? Oh, I, there's just a little bit more. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Uh, but Galarraga was Joyce's biggest defender, and the two even published a book together in 2012 titled Nobody's Perfect, Two Men, One Call, and a Game for Baseball History about the event. Although I'm not sure how you stretch a nine-inning game into 240 pages, but whatever. <laughs> in the end, it was still historic, a historic screw-up, but historic nonetheless. What are your questions? Uh, so, do you know what the average perfect games are per year like it's got to be so, less than one like having three in a only season 20, is there's nuts. only 23 yeah and the baseball's been around for books. over 100 years oh uh, yeah way over uh and we haven't so the last actually 2012 had three perfect games in it uh, not including uh no Dallas. this is 2010 oh there's 2010 okay so 2012 had three so they broke records in 2012 we haven't had a perfect game since, since then. Wow. So it's been at least eight years since uh, we've had a perfect game. But 2010 and 2012 were insane. Um, and then you said recognized. Does that include Doc Ellis's? No, that was a no-hitter. That wasn't a perfect game. Uh, yeah, they're separate. Yeah. Uh, never mind. I don't have a second question. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, and it it's really cute. Galarraga, he, he honestly... He was like, up until that ninth, that last out, that was the best game I've ever played, and he couldn't wait to like show the tape to his son because you know you have you have evidence that it was it was good, and he couldn't wait because in his heart he knew he'd done so well, and it didn't matter what the book said. No, yeah, he did try to go after change the books <laughs> this year, but <laughs> you know everybody's got their reasons for doing what they do. <laughs> All right, uh, your turn. Okie dokie. A Minneapolis bridge collapsed in 2007 because of an inch. Uh, the Confederacy lost the American Civil War because of four inches. <laughs> Ayrton Senna lost the Dallas Grand Prix because of three-eighths of an inch. Well, I know the first one's true. Let's go with the first one. Uh, you want me to read that one first? Minneapolis, sure. yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so here's this week's lie. Oh, man, you suck. The bridge collapsed because of half an inch. Oh, my God. I'm so over this. In 1967. Sorry, guys. I quit. <laughs> in 1967, the I-35 West Bridge was built in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a steel truss bridge, which means that all the supports are triangulated. And this particular one is supported underneath using pilings in the river it crosses over, the Mississippi. The way beams like this get attached to each other is using gusset plates. They are reinforced or thicker pieces of material than the pieces it connects and transfers the load between beams. They are generally stronger than the beams they connect and, as such, usually have a larger factor of safety built into them than the beams themselves. Back to the I-35 Westbridge. 
1977, the state added two inches of roadway on top of the bridge, which added about 16% dead load to the safe carrying capacity of the bridge. An inspection in 1991 revealed that the bridge was structurally deficient, but don't worry, about 10% of the bridges in the U.S. are considered structurally deficient. True dad. Another survey in 1994 reported that various gusset plates have corrosion, rust, or section loss. What do you do to a bridge that's failing at safety checks? Make it safer, obviously. Mm-hmm. So in 1997... No, 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 no. You bribe the people inspecting them. No. <laughs> okay, fine. Keep going. <laughs> you add a center divider to keep motorists safe, adding another 6% dead load to the bridge's rating. Thankfully... In 2007, con- construction begins on resurfacing the bridge, which leads us to August 1st, 97. Crews were set to pour concrete and had staged heavy equipment in one spot on the bridge around 2.30 in the afternoon. As rush hour traffic began, the bridge became heavy. It collapsed at 6.05. 145 people were injured and 13 perished. Now, what do you suppose was the reason for collapse? Improper maintenance or aging infrastructure? Bad materials. It was made of styrofoam. It's actually neither of those. Aw, oh, man, I tried so hard. When the bridge was built, the gusset plates that were used were only a half inch thick. At the oh. time at the time of construction, the standard for a bridge such as this would have been one th- inch thick. But this error was not caught during the design phase, nor the state board review. None of the bridge inspectors thought to measure the gusset thickness, even though they had reported rust corrosion and entire chunks falling off. Oh my god! Here's some fun facts about bridges in the U.S. I don't think this is fun at all. <laughs> yeah, this will this will brighten everyone's day. <clears throat> there are roughly 600,000 bridges in the U.S. as of 2016. One in ten is structurally deficient. And I was being kind of facetious earlier. Uh, it basically means that the bridge needs inspections more often. It's only suitable for light vehicles, like basically non-commercial vehicles, not basically not heavy vehicles, or requires maintenance. Uh, so in 2007, that number used to be 12%, so we're getting better, kind of. Uh, but on the other hand, it's been estimated that it would take decades to repair or replace all 55,000 bridges that are in need. Oh. Yeah, so. Bridges are fun. Bridges are not fun. Um, so take your pick. Bridges are terrifying. Confederacy losses American Civil War because of four inches. Well, it doesn't matter now. They're both true. I know, but I like... You know what? You're right. I'm going to go with the... I'm going to go with the... What are you going to go with? I'm going to go with the Civil War. No. Okay, go with the Civil War, because I chose it. (laughs) So I'm super glad you you had the French trains one. Well, I'm not now. (laughs) There are a ton of reasons why the Confederacy lost the Civil War, and this is kind of a judgment call, but I think the main reason is... The supply chains are the most important part about fighting a war. And now, having done your research, how much do you know about trains? Oh, nothing. I don't know anything about a train. Oh. Well, Only you, what Bruce told me. Do you know, So I brought up Gage earlier. Do you know what that reference is? Uh, how trainy they are. How wide the tracks are. Oh, so see, that, yeah, the that was going to be my next guess. Be on them. Oh, okay. The majority of North America runs on tracks that are 4 feet, 8.5 inches. This is called standard gauge. There are some outliers like streetcars, subway systems, and mining operations that use different gauges, but they're all pretty much the, the 4 feet, 8.5 inch size. And most of the United States has been running on these tracks since trains were built. So, 
going back a long time. A long time. Except the South. Oh. <laughs> the northern states had it all adopted the standard gauge, but the South was a smorgasbord of railway gauges. North Carolina and Virginia had the standard gauge, but the rest of the South mostly didn't. Oh my god, this is gonna be the problem! Most of them used five-foot gauge, but they ranged all the way up to six feet. Some cities, like Montgomery, Alabama, had trains that ran on different gauge tracks within the city, so goods, supplies, and personnel had to physically transfer railway cars instead of just changing engine cars. Oh, god. Uh, this was pretty normal throughout the South. When the Civil War began, it was discovered that moving troops and supplies through cities meant disembarking cars and loading into entirely different trains, sometimes walking through cities to get to the next depot. <laughs> Do you know what B&O stands for? Uh, B&O Railroad. I got that one on Monopoly. Yeah, but what, the, what does the B&O stand for? Fun something. Yeah, I'm going to say it and you're going to kick yourself. Baltimore and Ohio. Oh, no, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> so the B&O Railroad sympathized with the South. Until several skirmishes and acts of espionage destroyed a good portion of the railways, leading to some networks being offline for up to 10 months and costing B&O millions of dollars to repair. Colonel Thomas Stonewall Jackson seized a B&O railway in North Virginia, believing that it would cripple the North's ability to wage war. In response, B&O built the very first armored train car. It was effectively a train car with steel plates bolted to the sides. Oh, wow. Armored. <laughs> armored. <laughs> It took the South until the end of the war to realize the railway and its potential. Up until around 60, 1865, civilian transport was given precedence over military use. So I have a speed round for you. I'm going to give you a fact, and you're going to guess what the other side or whatever happened in relation to it happened. I didn't explain that very well, but you'll find out. I don't like games. The North laid about 4,000 <laughs> miles of track per year during the Civil War. How much did the South lay? None. About 400 miles a year. Oh, okay. At Closer. The, at the beginning of the war, a set of train wheels cost the South $15 to produce. How much do you think it cost at the end of the war? 150 500 Wow. I am not even close on any of these numbers. I think this is my favorite. In Richmond, Virginia, there are six railways that met up. Or at least at the time, there were six railways that met up. How many could interchange with each other? None. Zero. Yeah, I got one, guys. Each train, I get it. <laughs> each train ran on a different gauge track. Oh, God. There's nothing that works together. So, <sighs> in the end, it really wasn't four inches that lost the Confederacy of the war. It was really a lack of management and utilization of the railway system. Oh, so you lied on this one, too. No, I you mean... You just lie on all your stories. Brenna, to many Southerners, four inches is a big deal. We might cut that. <laughs> We're sorry. Of note, when the Civil War began in 1861, the North had 21,300 miles of railway compared to the South's 9,000 miles. What's more astonishing, and I had no idea, was the South had 5,000 miles of telegraph wire. Guess how many miles of telegraph wire the North had? A ton. A number? What was, there, what was the South number? South had 5,000 miles. 15,000 miles. 45,000 miles of telegraph wire. Never, I'm ever going to close on these actual numbers. I'm only that, getting zeros. That's why I make you guess. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't like your games, and you're quickly becoming the uh, villain of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because I'm about to tell you about my favorite Formula One racing driver. Oh my god, they weren't even alive in the Civil War. 
Ayrton Senna lost the Dallas Grand Prix because of three-eighths of an inch. Oh, we're on the next story. I'm sorry. So this is the story that brought this topic to my attention, uh, but it might actually be the most interesting race in F1 history. And I can't think of a better time to tell you all about my favorite Formula 1 racing driver. And before I get into why Ayrton Senna didn't even finish the Dallas Grand Prix, I'm going to go over the other crazy things that happened during the race. Mm -hmm. So the race was held at Fair Park in Dallas, Texas on July 8th, 1984. July. In Dallas, Texas. That sounds awful. At the start of the race, the temperature was already 100 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) At one point during the race, Goodyear recorded a temperature of over 140 degrees Fahrenheit in the pits. In the pits, 140? Oh my god. Some drivers tried to keep cool in various ways. Uh, K.K. Roseberg, who eventually won the race, employed a water-cooled skull cap inside his helmet. These were popular in NASCAR at the time, but F1 drivers usually didn't have to drive in extreme heat. Pierre Carlo Ginzani, who finished fifth, had his pit crew dump water on him when he came in for, for fuel. In order to beat the heat, the race was scheduled to start three hours earlier than most other F1 races that season. Actually, I'm pretty, pretty sure it was all F1 races that season. This was fine for most drivers. However, Jacques Lafitte arrived at the track in his pajamas. He arrived before the scheduled warm-up laps at 7.30, which were delayed. And then they were canceled. So the day before, a road race had taken place that had caused the track's asphalt to be destroyed in certain places. Emergency repairs had taken all night and all the way up to 10.30 or a half hour before the race was supposed to start. In fact, there was a real possibility that the race would be canceled due to the repairs. A backhoe had to pull up portions of the asphalt and replace it with quick-drying cement. Except cement doesn't dry at temperatures that high, so the concrete never cured, which caused the track's surface to change during the race. Wow. That's awful. (laughs) 26 drivers started the race. How many do you think finished? Zero. Eight. Only eight finished. Eleven drivers spun off or made contact with a wall that ended their day. Five had mechanical failures like gearboxes breaking, in Nigel Mansell's case, or electrical issues for Jonathan Palmer. And Stefan Beloff was disqualified. Later in the 1984 racing season, Beloff and his team were found to be using an illegal fuel tank ballast. All of their finishes were turned into DQs, and the team was banned from the rest of the season. One of the drivers who spun off claimed that a wall had moved during the race. Oh my god. This leads us to Ayrton Senna, the Brazilian racing phenom. I very much like Ayrton Senna. And watching videos him race are otherworldly. I, ha- I highly encourage all of you to look up videos of him driving. He passes cars effortlessly, like they're standing still. We're going to take a small break to watch a video of one of the best demonstration of his skill. It's of the start of the race at Donington Park in 1993. And I'll include the link in the show description. It's a moist day on the track, and Senna starts in fifth. Within half a lap, he's up to first, and he never lets go of it. In terms of pure driving skill, he's the best. There's also a documentary on Netflix called Senna that I highly recommend. Senna was quite the enigma, as he was both selfless and uncaring at the same time. During a qualifier for the 1992 Belgian Grand Prix, fellow driver Eric Comas had crashed into a wallet, knocking him unconscious. Senna stops his car off the track and runs toward Comas' car while other drivers are zooming by. He turns off Comus's car and holds Comus's head until medical personnel arrive. 
1990, Senna leads the championship points race going into the final race of the season at Suzuka Circuit. Senna had qualified first and had pole position for the start of the race. Alain Prost, who was second in points, had qualified second for the race. The race marshal ordered the pole position to be switched to the dirty side of the track, giving Prost the more desirable line going into the first corner. The race starts, and as Senna and Prost are going into the first corner, Prost turns in. And Senna? Well, he doesn't really. He barrels into Prost, and they both go skidding off into the gravel, ending their day. Oh. This causes Senna to win the championship, as no one else in the race, no one else still in the race, had enough points to catch him. He was an interesting driver. And very particular, which brings us back to Dallas in 1984. Okay. The Dallas Grand Prix was 67 laps. Senna qualified 6th and made it to 4th before spinning out, damaging his rear wing. He had to wait until the entire field passed before he could rejoin the race. He entered the pits, got his wing repaired, and then mounted an amazing comeback. He got back up to 4th, but then on lap 47, he contacted a wall, spun out, broke a drive shaft, ending his day. As he returns to the pits, he tells his race engineer that he had not made an error. The wall must have moved. <laughs> Quote, I just cannot understand how I did that. I was taking it no differently than I had been before. The wall must have moved. <laughs> After the race concluded, Senna and his race engineer walked to the wall in question. So the wall was like our jersey barrier, where it's pretty solid but can be moved if it's hit hard enough. Another driver had contacted the far edge of the wall, which pushed it in, and moved the close end of the wall out. How far? They measured it to be about three-eighths of an inch. That's how accurate Senna was. A three-eighths inch difference was the difference between him finishing the race and him contacting the wall. That's insane. I mean, when you feel it right, you feel it. Well, I don't make mistakes, so the wall must have moved. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounded like. It was like, just somebody's like, me? No. Uh, do you have any fun ones? Uh, one notable I had was the uh, Vasa ship, which was the Pride of Sweden in 1628. It made it only a couple yards off, so it was this the prized ship, and they put like two rows of cannons supposedly on it, and it was on its maiden voyage, and it made it just a couple yards out before it sank. Um, it is an interesting story, however, the thing is, is the reason why it sank is speculative. So some say it's because the cannons were too heavy. Some say it's because they were, they were mismeasured with different um, measuring sticks that had, or it was also the difference between a Swedish meter and like a different kind of meter. And a yard, probably. Yeah, well, something like that. Uh, but the thing is, it's all speculation because everything we found from it, we've had to bring back up from under the sea. So I vaguely remember this. It, they never recovered the ship, right? Like it's still sitting at the bottom of the. No, no, no it's recovered. Oh, here. they did recover they have a picture it. Oh, of it. yeah. Never mind. It's been I'm completely recovered, and thinking of something else. Uh, it's now in a museum. It's in a museum. This is what she looked like. Oh, she wow, was a that beautiful is, ship. That is a beautiful ship. Sixteen twenty-eight. It's a good, it's a good year for ships. Twenty eight guns. Um, they, yeah. So a lot of the reason why she, the reason why I didn't cover it was because, uh, it's very speculative of why it sunk. We don't know exactly why, but there was quite a few things that could have possibly. Uh, what did you have? 
That sucks. That, that would have been quite the pirate ship. Yeah. Quite the vessel. Well, I mean, it was for the... I think it was for the... Uh, so I had, I had a story. I don't know. I just didn't, think, didn't find it interesting enough, but I did write the, the, the headline for it. Uh, King David, the first of Scotland measured an inch by cutting off the thumbs of three men and taking the average length of their fingernails. And really, this was going to be a story about uh, how an inch is defined uh, and, I guess, a, a deeper dive into imperial units. Uh, King David I of Scotland actually just used alive men's thumbs. Well, he, you might you don't have to be dead to lose your thumb. Yeah, but I thought it'd be more fun if I said you cut but what he it. It was going to be the is, line. Yeah, it was going to be his line. It was going to be that the thumbs were cut off, but they weren't. He just measured nails. Yeah, and uh, there was also, uh, there was a point in time where an inch was defined as, I think it was like six grains of barley stood next, <laughs> right, one right next to each other, or something like that. And, it's so uh, ridiculous. Yeah, imperial <laughs> units are making no sense, and I have no idea how they survived this long. But they did get to the moon, so I have no idea. I don't want to talk to you right now. <laughs> uh, the other fun one I had was uh, also involves Miguel Cambrera, which was involved in your story about Jose Galarraga. Yep. Uh, he goes up to bat one time, and uh, he claims he turns around and claims to the umpire that the batter's box is drawn too small. But one of the uh, the um, takes a tape measure to it and redraws the batter's box on the spot because I forget who they were playing, but they were playing in the other team's home. Uh, uh-huh. So they had gotten used to the small batter's box, but it oh, wasn't regulation size. I didn't even know it was that. I didn't even know yeah, that no, it was like, it had been drawn like that for a while. Yeah, no, it was, it was on purposely drawn that oh, way too. Oh, shady. Mm-hmm. Super shady. Yeah, but that's, that's about it. Right. Well, this one, this one was a little difficult to come up with stuff. It was difficult, but I think uh, I think we came up with some good ones. Is it that time? I think it's that time. All right. Well, this has been Live Patrol. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will see you next week. Have a good one. Bye. For show ideas, inaccuracies, or general comments, you can email us at thelivepatrol at gmail.com. Intro and outro music provided by The Simulation Hypothesis by Revolution Void. Found on the Free Music Archive, CCBY license. Thanks for listening.